You don't know how personal it was to be in the White House in those days. It was like everybody was angry at you because you humiliated the country. Straight talk is an expression we reserve for those who have the temerity and tenacity to tell it like it is. Today's guest, Chris Matthews, is all of that and more. As a former presidential speechwriter and chief of staff to a legendary House speaker, Matthews' hardball show became a staple of American news for more than two decades because he spoke truth to power and expected the same in return. From Ballard Studios in Washington, D.C., it's 13th and Park. We give you information, not a panic attack. We look what's going on. I mean, my God. This was it. The kids were gonna die. That time is gone forever. This is the biggest story in America. We weren't prepared for this. Don't you want to speak truth to power? Toughest thing I ever had to do. So, Chris, welcome to 13th and Park. Let's start in the very beginning, back in North Philadelphia. You grew up there and in the suburbs, obviously, yeah. a little bit later on, listening as I read to the Lone Ranger on radio, by the yeah, way. Yeah, I was on, uh, may have been on at 7 o'clock, and um, Hio <laughs> Silver, get him up, Scout. <laughs> and I remember that. And it was, uh, Roy Rogers was three days a week. You know, everything was on radio before it was on television. Right. I, I don't know how we lived with ourselves without television back then. Well, we did. And uh, we listened to radio and uh, Amos and Andy, all these shows that, you know, unacceptable today, but we're on radio. But I love that. Burns and Allen. Yeah. I love those shows. Classics. Great music. So the first, you might say, aha moment, it seems, in your life is now we're in the late 60s, Vietnam War, and you decide it was the week, unfortunately, when Robert Kennedy was assassinated that you made the decision. I was up in Montreal. I was a, a block above St. Catherine Street, mm. the main drag. Mm. I made a list on a, a little business card of all the things I could do, and I said, Peace Corps. Why? Adventure. Mm. I wanted to go to Africa. I wanted to go over and far out, in the, way out in the bush and test myself. Well, you did, because you went to Swaziland. Yeah, which I didn't know where it was. I had to go when I, in North Carolina in grad school. I went over to the Memorial Hall, the big library, and uh, one of the books had a picture with a bit, with a beach on it. Yeah. Doesn't have a beach, and I figured out where it was, right between South Africa and Mozambique, yeah. which was Portuguese in those days, and Southern Africa in those days was still controlled by whites, and uh, and Swaziland was independent, black ruled, a king, King Sabuza. I had a job teaching business to. Uh, small businessmen. And I, when I got over there, I was given a, th- a fourth of the country to develop. <laughs> and I mean, the, the guy, the Not minister, much of a play. Just the minister of, uh, I wrote in the book, but the Minister of Commerce said, I want you to develop this province. And I got a motorcycle and uh, I drove around these little businesses way out in the bush. I, I do have very romantic notions of being out in the bush, looking at the escarpment in the distance, just like in Tarzan unbelievable panorama and I've got my bike and it's me as the only white guy really around and uh, the business guys were as nice to me as you can imagine they were wonderful people mm-hmm. they didn't have much but they were very good people it was you and your Suzuki 120 right it couldn't do much but the roads weren't that great either but about 40 miles an hour it took about two hours to get to the capital right this moved down stream a little bit when you first saw Washington in your book, This Country, you had kind of this magical connection. And the first time you came as a kid. We'd come down here as a family, and we saw the slave quarters at Mount Vernon. These were powerful memories. And, uh, and of course, the Smithsonian with all the bikes. In fact, I, I saw a Liberty Bell next to the, uh, a small Liberty Bell next to the Treasury Building. And, 
And my dad said, no, the real one's in Philadelphia. <laughs> you should have seen that already. But right. um, the city had magic. I guess we, we, all the times I came down here from Philly, and it was always nicer weather, just mm-hmm. a little difference in May. And it was really sunny and warm and almost like a resort town. I just thought, I'm going to go to get a job on Capitol Hill from a senator or a congressman. I'm going to get it done. And that's how I'm going to do it. And you did it spending your resources down to $80. You had $80 left, right? You've been all over Capitol Hill looking for a job. And you finally got your break. Wayne Owens was the AA, the top aide to Frank Moss, the Utah senator. And he said, uh, figure out this tax problem for Abra Vanell, orchestra leader of the Utah Symphony, and try to figure out a tax problem for him and his wife. And I dug it and dug it and dug it and came back with the answer. And he said, okay, now I'll make you a Capitol cop. You were that, on the Capitol. I was a Capitol in uniform. You were packing heat, right? A 38 special, <laughs> police special. And I had this job for about three months. And then I became a legislative assistant, which is what the job I wanted to get initially. But I did learn a lot from the police. I liked them. The only Democratic liberal senator who said hello to the police every day was Bobby Kennedy. Is that right? I wanted to know these things. And uh, Leroy Taylor, who later became a sergeant, I think, he said to me one time, you know why the little man loves his country? It's because it's all he's got. It's all he's got. And I never want to forget that. Anyone reads through your your life experiences, your resume, so to speak, I mean, you had a respect for Jack Kennedy. Yeah. For Richard Nixon. Yeah. For Bobby Kennedy. Yeah. For Ronald Reagan. It wasn't a partisan affection. It was more of a sense of a connection to people you felt had leadership stripe. Yeah. I think uh, Reagan was essential to what he was doing. There was nobody else to do it. At that moment. Well, he was the one that was paid 90% of his income as an actor in Hollywood to taxes. And he was the guy that was fighting the communists in in SAG. I mean, he was the real guy. He he didn't learn it from somebody else. It's his experiences that made him a conservative. See, I think that's a story that's not really misunderstood about Reagan. They think, well, he was a great actor, and he was a great actor on this stage as well, the public stage. But it's more than that. It's really in the core of his his gut in terms of what he believed and how he acted and how he led in some very difficult times for this country. There were some Reds. There weren't many of them, but there are enough of them in the government to, to worry people. And uh, after the World War II, Alger Hiss was one. Nixon found a real one. Mm-hmm. So I'm still an anti-communist. I think many of us are. I suspect that Russia used communism as a, as a world force to get where they wanted to get. We're seeing it now. They don't call themselves communists anymore. But what are they up to? They're expanding. It's it's not something different they came up with. Let's let's do aggression as a new thing. <laughs> We've done this before. <laughs> so here you know, you had this experience on Capitol Hill. You ended up working more directly with Senator Moss from Utah, Edmund Muskie. You started to get to know a lot of people. But then you got at some point the itch. I'll call it the itch. As a campaign person, I, I know this. You ran in Pennsylvania's fourth congressional district. I think it was against Joshua Albert. Yeah. And I was back at Haverford College then. My basic campaign was I didn't have any money. And I wasn't going to ask any money for money. I said, I'm not taking money for money because I didn't think I'd get any. And uh, I understood the Watergate theme at the time. And I also, uh, so I went around to high school kids and I would get permission from teachers and schools to let me go in and talk to their classes. And I'd say afterwards, it was like Billy Graham afterwards. I'd say, who wants to come down, you know? And the kids would come up and fill out forms for their addresses and phone numbers and everything. And then we'd start campaigning on the boulevard, on the Roosevelt Boulevard, sure. with uh, all these young kids uh, out there waving signs to honk and wave for Chris Matthews. And 
And finally, Albert got a hold of the cops. <laughs> they <laughs> shut that thing down. I learned one thing. If you go to a supermarket, always go around where the uh, vegetables are on the right. Go past the vegetables mm-hmm. on the right and work, uh, work around uh, counterclockwise. Because then you never bump into the same person oh, twice. Smart. And right. so you're always meeting new people. And by the time you get to the other side of the store, you get out of there. But you don't keep bumping into the same people. There's nothing more embarrassing than say, hi, I'm Chris Matthews. You just talked to me, buddy. <laughs> but your dream job, right, moving forward was the job with President Jimmy Carter. I came to Washington in 1971 wanting to be a speechwriter, not to be a candidate or anything like that. I wanted to be a writer for a president because I knew what that was. And um, great history. I mean, Sam Roseman was uh, Franklin Roosevelt's writer. Sure. He wrote the phrase New Deal. Mm-hmm. He said it was no big deal. I just wrote New Deal, and all of a sudden it became the catchphrase for the whole economic program of FDR. And he also wrote the Fallis speech, the best speech ever given, where Roosevelt just destroyed Dewey, yep. Tom Dewey, the governor of New York, because he said basically his, his dog was upset at being, <laughs> causing a, a ship to turn around in the Aleutian Islands. And he's a Scotty, so he doesn't like seeing wasted money. <laughs> it was just the most amazing speech. And basically blew the guy out with one, one speech. That experience, Chris, in the Carter White House, look, it was a tough time for the president. He came in. He was an outsider from Plains, Georgia. Outsider. Always an outsider. Always the outsider. He was really anti-establishment. He was kind of, he wanted to go there and kind of straighten the place out. Never really had that chance. You know, suddenly he's faced with a recession, other challenges, and ultimately the Iranian hostages. So I want to play you this clip uh, from- Oh, here we go. Here we go. From the president, President Jimmy Carter- in a very difficult time when the mission to rescue the Iranian hostages didn't quite go as planned. Late yesterday, I canceled a carefully planned operation which was underway in Iran to position our rescue team for a later withdrawal of American hostages. As our team was withdrawing after my order to do so, two of our American aircraft collided on the ground following a refueling operation in a remote desert location in Iran. There was no fighting, there was no combat, but to my deep regret, eight of the crewmen of the two aircraft which collided were killed. You know the expression battle-hardened. I would think those four years under President Carter and your time with the president must have battle-hardened you. Carter hated war. We got our hostages taken. That's an act of war. He could have gone to war with Iran. Right. And maybe that was their answer. Maybe going to war then made sense. We'll argue about this for the rest of our lives, maybe. When, when was the right time to strike at Iran? But he wasn't going to take a couple hundred thousand casualties. And he wasn't going to do what we did with Iraq. He wasn't going to do that. And he, he, he took the humiliation right in the stomach of uh, letting our hostages be trooped around with blindfolds on and a flag burning. It, people... My friends gave me trouble. I mean, you, you don't know how personal it was to be in the White House in those days. It was like everybody was angry at you because you humiliated the country. And, and Reagan just rolled it up. He just, he never had to mention it. It just was. And everybody knew it. Are you better off than you were four years ago? Are you prouder of your country than you were four years ago? No. Carter wasn't going to do. I remember the last Sunday we came back from Chicago. Mm-hmm. We got the word that the mullahs were voting again. It turned out they were having the same basic restrictions. And Carter got on television Sunday night, like the same time 60 Minutes is on, and went on and told the American people, I can't tell you when we're getting hostages out. 
I can't help. You don't know what they're up to do. In other words, we're completely hogtied by this third world nobody. It's right before the election. Yeah. He was basically telling the American people, I have no power to do anything about this. That's when he lost all the numbers. That's when I think it crashed. So you decided to move from there to what was described as an on-the-job doctorate in politics, Tip O'Neill. He made me his administrative assistant, and he said, we're going to have fun. And uh, it was a great opportunity. My God, six years. It was rough. He, he was demanding, intimidating. I think everybody liked him. But I remember the ads against Tip O'Neill. Congressman, I think we're running out of gas. Oh, no. It's not as if the Democrat Congress didn't have a warning. The last three presidents warned them. Congressman, we are running out of gas. But the Democrats, who have controlled Congress for 25 years, ignored them. They just went blindly down the road. Hey, we're out of gas! The Democrats are out of gas. Vote Republican for a change. Made it look like, like he's in a, a car that runs a out of gas. Pad, a car's running out of gas. All this stuff. I may have been able to convince him he had to go on TV and confront it because he didn't. They didn't need him to be in the ad. They could have some actor do it, and they're still going to attack him. Didn't he ask you uh, point blank, "What am I doing wrong and what, what am I doing right?" Did you in the back have room. the courage to tell him well, what I'm he was doing wrong? Sitting in the wrong? back room when he decided he was going to think about me because he knew I was being proposed for his solution to his problems. And I had absolute confidence when I came to Washington that I could write speeches with no reason. And I had absolute confidence I could help him with no reason. This is just whatever. And I'm in the back room with him, and he had he's one of those Washington people, you know them. They're, they usually work in government, like GS-15s or something, with short sleeves. They always wear shorts and pocket protectors. So right, they they right. always look official. And uh, he had short sleeves and huge butcher arms, very strong guy. He was 6'3", and I was 6'3", but he was big. He was a big 6'3". Yeah, yes. and he said that question, what am I doing right, what am I wrong? I don't know if I actually had an answer at that point, but I did say, you have to talk, because that's what I do. I'd write one more, I would always write two or three lines each morning, and he would use them to get the press conference going. And they'd be the ones that were quoted. And he, uh, he liked them. He would say it's his, it was kind of more Jewish humor than Irish humor. It wasn't Danny <laughs> right. Thomas' long stories with a nice, cute ending, a Myron Cohen ending. It was more wise guy stuff. And he liked the wise guy stuff, you know, and uh, that's what I was good at, I think. And um, Reagan, uh, Reagan was, uh, was Herbert Hoover with a smile. <laughs> that was one of your lines. Reagan didn't like that. I bet he didn't like that at all. It's always the best lies that get the most, you know, heat, Reagan right? Reagan would, would walk a mile for a camera. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, they weren't nasty exactly. They were right. Bob Hope jokes, really. Yeah. But he, uh, his friend Bob Hope, actually, he was at the funeral. You know, it's a funny thing. I was just thinking, I was at Bob Hope. It was at the Washington Hilton. And Jerry Ford was there and Jimmy Carter was there. It was Tip's goodbye party. It was a campaign event for Boston College. Big surprise tip. And um, I'm in the men's room there. If you ever go to the men's room, it's like the Philadelphia train station. It's all urinals all the way down the hall. I've been, I've been in the Philadelphia so train the, station. Then right. you know the moon. Right. Witness. Oh, yeah. It's all about that. So all the way down, seven down or whatever, and there's Bob Hope. <laughs> and and I, he looked at me, saw me looking at him, and he goes, there's a guy who's going to talk about this the rest of his life. Yeah. <laughs> it was Bob Hope. So you obviously, you wrote 
kind of the primer on politics uh, years ago, how politics is still played. good. It's still good. That's, I want to go through some of the rules that yeah. you laid out then. And you use, of course, as examples in each of your chapters, people as diverse as Benjamin Franklin and Huey Long. I, I thought that was very yeah, creative, well, by the Huey way. Huey Long. Yeah, there's a guy. And Franklin, Franklin said, if you want to make a friend, uh, ask somebody for a favor. Which is one of your rules. Yeah. So you also said, it's not who you know, but who you get to know. Yeah. Dance with the one that brung you. This is my favorite. Don't get mad. Don't get even. It's a tough one, by the way. Get ahead. Yeah. Leave no shot an answer, which is, you know, we're not turning the other cheek anymore. Then I like this one, too. Only talk when it improves the silence. Ed Muskie. Really? Ed, yeah, Ed Muskie up there in Maine. He, uh, he thought he had a real lead in the campaign in <laughs> 1972, but he mm -hmm. didn't. Right. Um, but he he was never talk. Very main kind of guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I said to him when I was leaving his staff to go work at the White House, I said, Senator, I always thought that if we had a parliamentary system in this country, you'd be prime minister now. He said, there's Muskie, mm -hmm. but we don't, do we? <laughs> That's him. We don't do we. Well, you know, Ed Muskie, of course, was the person who would sit at, you know, after committee sessions and go through all the conversation about bills, what's in the bills. And also all the proxies. He had all the proxies from all the members to vote his way. So you were saying, Chris, that that book and the lessons in that book are still absolutely appropriate today. I'd agree. But I've spent most of my life listening to politicians. I've been listening and I'm watching them. And what have you learned? It's not so good to be a Joe Pesci in life, <laughs> to not to be an SOB. Mm -hmm. It's, it's good to keep your word and, to, and tell people they can rely on you and what you say in the, as they pass you in the hall or in a conversation in the cloakroom that that means something, that you're not going to betray them. But also asking people for favors. I really believe that it's, it's for men, I think, especially, it's hard to do that. But if you ask, you call up a guy and say, you know, my kid's doing pretty well. She's getting B pluses and A's and she's trying to get into Boston College. Mm -hmm. Can you make a call? And he wouldn't always get the kid in. But one time, I'm leaving the office. Right. And I had written my recommendation to Georgetown Law. <laughs> Your own recommendation. Yeah, yes. of course. And I'm there with the chief counsel. I bet it's a very good with, recommendation. With, uh, it was a whiz. I was with Kirk O'Donnell, the chief counsel, and we're both laughing. And he comes in with his big arms. And he's looking at There's a picture of me next to him. And he starts to read my introduction of me. <laughs> and then he said, you know, of course, it's the phone call that matters. Oh, my gosh. It's not what you write on these papers here. It's what I say on the phone about you. Final question for part one. I know this might be uncomfortable for you, but, you know, coming from hardball, you know, you, sh you should be used to I should putting be it out there. To. It's about your brother, Jim. So you run for— <laughs> You, you That's run, my laugh. That's you my, run for I office. Threw my office my you run for office, Pennsylvania 4. You had that experience, didn't quite make it, right? Jim, who had already succeeded in, in running and winning in county commission, at one point was the lieutenant governor nominee under the famous Lynn Swan. Now, he didn't win that race. Almost much, governor. Much like you didn't win your first race. Mm. Now, here's the question, Chris. Who was the better candidate? Jim or me? Jim or you? Oh, Jim. Jim. Why is that? Well, Jim, I campaigned with him and walked around the district, around uh, Montgomery County, which is the wealthiest county in Pennsylvania, like here in Washington. And uh, he was very good at uh, talking to people about, well, you know, I put in the uh, target range here for the police officers. Do you know that? And he would tell me uh, when he's walking along with me, people don't know what I do here. And he, I got your new shooting gallery, whatever it is. But I think he's more popular than me, more social. Yeah, but you ran a campaign with no money. You didn't know, ask I, for money. I know. Right? I uh, 
I might have been able to point to a vision of a better country. You had a great article in the Inquirer. I mean, you, yeah. there were some yeah. certain bennies in your first run, right? I wanted to be um, what John McCain became. Yeah. John McCain ran on that ticket. So I want you to know not that you need this. You did very well on part one of the Chris Matthews story okay, today. You. And we'll continue with part two shortly. Thank you. Remember to subscribe today and hit the bell so you never miss another episode of the show with that trademark opener from Washington, D.C. It's 13th and Park. Park.